Thank you. Uh, let me, well, welcome, as I said. It's great to see you here. Now, if you are visiting, um, and this is your first time at church, uh, you, uh, this may feel a little bit like an insider's conversation. I hope not too much. I hope there'll still be lots for you to learn. Um, but, f but it is one of those conversations we have that uh, can make people feel both liberated and full of joy and sometimes also a little uncomfortable. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you why that is. Uh, there are some things in our society that you're not meant to talk about in polite company. What are those? Politics? Religion? Sex? Money. Politics, religion, sex, and money. Okay, so um, anything else? Those are the main ones. So you're at church, so we're, we're good to talk about religion here, okay? We've prayed about politics. Uh, we won't be making any overt comments about how you should vote. Um, just vote early and vote often. Um, okay, so, and thank God that we live in a country where we can change governments without bloodshed. That principle of succession is incredibly significant and never to be taken lightly. So that's our comment about politics. So that leaves sex and money. So which would you rather I talked about to make you feel uncomfortable this morning? Did I hear sex? I can change topics. I wasn't going to, but, you know, I've got an, a whole sermon series on sex. Maybe that'll come up next. Okay, so we're going to talk a bit about money. And when I say a bit about money, I say we're going to talk a lot about money, and we're going to do it for the next few weeks. And, uh, and you might say to me, well, why should we do that, Mark? I mean, particularly... Uh, sometimes we can think, oh, churches just are always after my money. Uh, I don't know if any of you are on TikTok. Wrong demographic. Okay, so go to your kids or your grandkids uh, and get on that TikTok account. And there's a, there's a great hashtag on TikTok of uh, something like awkward sermon clips. And uh, why am I recommending this? Uh, it's probably, there'll probably be a bunch of really unhelpful ones, but the ones I saw when I was researching for this talk was a whole bunch of sermon clips on money, and they come from a particular genre of the church, and it's, and it's really funny and awful and cringy. And generally it involves someone with a, a deep American accent looking earnestly into the camera and telling you that if you sow your $1,000 into this ministry, then God will bless you with $10,000 at least. And the best piece of financial advice I heard from one of these people, and, and they're TikTok clips, right? So you don't get the full context. I'm sure in context, they were balanced and thoughtful and nuanced with a great call to sacrificial poverty on behalf of the ministry leader. <laughs> but in the clip I saw, it wasn't. But the best bit of financial advice I saw was the guy looking earnestly into the mirror and saying, well, that $1,000 won't pay off your house anyway. So you might as well sow it into the ministry. I thought, what great financial advice that is. So uh, I promise you, you're not going to hear any of that from me um, at all. Uh, and I also want to say, uh, it, it can make us feel, money can make us feel really uncomfortable. 
which is really weird because we spend an awful lot of time thinking about money, don't we? I mean, we go to work to get satisfaction and to serve others and to get money. We think about interest rates going up and we think about the impact of that on our mortgages, so we're thinking about money. We think about how much we have, how much our friends have, how much we don't have, how much we wish we had. Do we have enough to retire on in comfort? Um, it's, we think if you've got kids, don't you, don't you worry or think about how are your kids going to go financially in this world? I mean, how, you know, how many conversations have I had with my peers that go something like this? Gosh, I have, no, I have no idea how our kids will ever be able to afford to buy a house in Sydney. Uh, maybe you've had those conversations. So it's, it's interesting. It's in the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights that purchasing a house in Sydney is a human right. Um, and, uh, you know, so uh, how do we, we think about this all the time? So you go, okay. Why talk about it at church, Mark? I think about it all the time at home. <laughs> I need a break. Here's an interesting reality, though. Money has this powerful spiritual and emotional effect on us. There's this phenomena called um, money priming. Do you know they did an experiment where they, uh, they had students come into a room... And uh, as they came into the room and waited for an interview, there was a, there was a computer on the desk. And on the screensaver, uh, there was either blank or for some of the students, they had pictures of American dollar bills on the screensaver, like rotating, just cash, pictures of money. And do you know that the students who sat in a waiting room but saw pictures of money on the screensaver were more selfish more competitive and less inclined to cooperate than students who didn't see this. For example, if you saw money on the screensaver, you would sit further away in the room from the other participants, a statistically significant distance away because you had just seen money. If you had seen money on the screen and the uh, a lecturer or assistant or interviewer, someone walked into the room and they dropped uh, some pencils or pens on the floor, if you had been in the room when the money was on the screen, you were less likely to get up and offer to help. And the amount of time it took you to get up and offer to help was greater than if you hadn't been primed by seeing pictures of money. Money primes us for selfishness, for competitiveness, for competition uh, with others and comparisons. Isn't that interesting? And it's not new. It's not new. I would say that we all, by and large, as I, as I think about us, um, most of us would think Jesus' teaching is pretty good. Uh, the other thing I saw in my research this week on TikTok was uh, a clip from Elon Musk. Being, you know, Elon Musk, richest man in the world at the moment. Uh, and Elon Musk, in an interview going, he really, he really thinks that the teachings of Jesus are 
are fantastic. And he thinks we should live by them, you know, things like turn the other cheek and love your neighbor. And I went, that is so good, Elon. And, and Elon, like most of us, would go, these are the things that come to mind when we think of the teachings of Jesus. And you'd be right. But, you know, Jesus had an enormous amount to say about money. And I suspect most of us, and I speak entirely for myself, I'm far more comfortable with Jesus' teachings about things like forgiveness and other moral and spiritual things than I am with some of what he has to say about money. Because it cuts to the very core of who we are. So we're going to talk about that. And, uh, and it's massively significant in our own spiritual lives. And we do it because my reading of the Bible and my reading of my own soul and my observation of people close up over 30 years of pastoral ministry is that there are very few things that will expose what I actually believe and what I actually value. The very few things that expose that, um, like what my attitude is towards money. Like that gets in some way that's deep. It gets to the heart of who we are. Because money, money has a spiritual force that is unlike anything else in the world. It's animated spiritually. And it feeds into us at a very, very deep level. And so it's really significant to think about it, to be set free from the love of it, to learn to be generous. Uh, and so we're going to do that. And, uh, and if you're visiting this morning and you think, oh, gosh, every time I go to church, they talk about money. Well, I'm sorry. It's not true. Come back in five weeks and we won't be talking about money. But for the next few weeks, we're going to dig into it. We're going to think about it. Let me also say you are absolutely free to disagree with me and anyone else here. Like it really is. Our community is, is about persuasion, not coercion. It's about thinking together and learning together to follow Jesus, not about forcing or manipulating anyone to believe or to do anything. Uh, there is this principle of freedom and of grace and of acceptance that, that is massively significant. So um, you are absolutely free to disagree with anyone in this community about anything, really, and still be loved and cared for and welcomed. Uh, and, uh, and that includes this topic of money. Um, so I just want to say all of that. Now, uh, having said that, let's back up and frame our discussion about money. And what we're going to do is frame it when we think about money in the church. We have to start with, well, well what is the church for? And what are we all here for, right? So, so this is our mission. We help people connect with God and live great lives. That's, it's really simple. That's what we do. Um, and if you've been here a while, you will have heard this uh, for a while. Now you say, well, okay, how does that work? Well, I think every, um, every business, every organization, you should be able to sketch out the primary task, the essence of what that organization does on a napkin or serviette. So this is the little serviette diagram that uh, I use to describe every organization. So you can think of every organization uh, as an organism that has inputs from its environment, 
It uh, transforms those inputs, adds value to them in some way, rearranges them, takes them apart, reassembles them, and then uh, puts uh, has an output into the environment that the environment the customers are willing to pay for and adds value, right? That's how every organism works. So let's think, for example, uh, about a restaurant. Say you go to one of the cafes here, um, this is a cafe on Darling Street. What is the uh, what is the input into a cafe or restaurant? What's the what's the most significant input into a cafe or a restaurant? Coffee customers, produce, service. Okay, so let's go with the very first one: customers. What sort of customers are the most significant input into a cafe? Regular customers, yeah. More basic than that. Ones with money, yeah, that's a good one, yeah. Even more basic, sorry? Ones that eat, yes, yes. Even more basic than that. Well, they eat, yes, but when do they eat? We, what you actually want, the basic input, is uh, hungry customers. It makes no, there's no benefit for you if you go and have a massive meal and then come sit in your restaurant and don't do anything. You actually want hungry customers, okay? And then what do you do to those hungry customers? Well, here's where, at, at this level of the transformation, this is where you add coffee and you add food and you add service and you do all of that stuff, right? So this is how you transform your customer. And then what's the output of a restaurant? So, happy people, satisfied customers. Yeah, let's call it let's call it satiated customers, uh, and they're happy, right? Because happy customers go out and they tell other people, and they tell other people, and then they're hungry and they come back again, and you get this beautiful virtuous cycle. Any organization takes things in and adds value to them and then exports them and the environment the customers are prepared to pay for that experience, right? You've added value. Now you can, you can actually break this down and make this widgets or whatever it is. I've chosen a, a human service business and actually pretty much every business is about serving people. Okay, so now, I say, why are we doing this? Well, let's think about us. As a church, as a community, as an organism, and actually you can think about Darling Street Church as the... Really, you could think about every, this could be the body of Christ, the church in the city of Sydney. So what are the inputs into our church? Hungry people. I love that. Okay. But what are we hungry for? Spiritual food. So we're spiritually hungry. Spiritually hungry people? How else would you describe the people? Think about maybe if you've done a bit of Bible reading and you've got some biblical categories. What are some biblical categories to, to describe our inputs? What sort of broken? Lost? Grateful? Mm, okay, let's, uh, let's put a hold on that for the moment. Yeah. Lost, broken, seeking, I mean sinners, <laughs> uh, without God, 
this is how Ephesians, without God, without hope. I'd add some other words here. I'd say people who are addicted to all kinds of things, addicts, etc. We bang them all in, right? Okay, so you go, that's wonderful. Now, what's the output? Grateful people, yes. Yeah, so we go, so we still have people. So we've, but we've done something. Something's happened to these people, and they're grateful. Yep. It's a commun. They're in community, so they're uh, in community. Yeah. They're no longer lonely. They have some direction. Yeah, yeah. They have purpose. What else? They have hope. People with hope. They have joy. They're changed. Yeah, they're changed. So let's. So I'll, I'll make it really simple, right? These people, according to the Bible, are Christ-like. That's the goal. C.S. Lewis puts it really, really well in his books, Mere Christianity. He says the purpose of the church is nothing less than to produce mini Christs. Melinda. A work in progress on that journey. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh. Aww. <laughs> Melinda, I would never have said that. <laughs> uh, that's right. I mean, and it's really a matter of timing, so maybe the final output we only see in the new creation and until that time. The other way to think about it, the other way is we are those who are... We've gone from being uh, pagans, these are biblical categories, to being missionaries. It's really simple, right? You go from here to here. Now, does that make sense? That's the journey we're on. Now, you could be, uh, you could be anywhere on that spectrum, but the, the key criteria for the church is that that we are doing this for people, that you are becoming increasingly Christ-like. And there are a whole bunch of attributes that we can unpack that, deter, you know, that, that illustrate what Christ-likeness looks like. But that's it. Um, now the question then is, well, how does that happen? How, does, how do we do this as a church? Um, I, I did some pre-work on this. Uh, because I knew my writing wouldn't be clear. So we're lost, hungry, broken, without God, without hope in the world. We, we, our output of followers of Jesus, increasingly Christ-like, light and salt in the world, healed agents of healing, comforting others with the comfort we ourselves have received. The question is, uh, what happens, dear friends, in this space? What do we do for that to happen and for that to happen effectively? Well, uh, this is the key way we do it. We put up pretty pictures. No, the key way is that people come to Jesus and enter this process of transformation on the arm of a friend. This is how we do it. So the key transformation is this. The key thing that happens is this. You have a friend who's here, and they reach out to a friend who's here. And they enter the, they cross the boundary into the system that way. 
Isn't that how God changes our lives, if you think about it? It's always through a person. It's always through someone else. It's someone, it's someone expressing love and care, reaching out a hand of friendship, and then grabbing you on and moving you closer to Jesus. And, and I'm not, this boundary, this neat circle, does not, it's not neat in reality. The circle is invisible, right? It's, it's moving people towards this journey of becoming Christ-like, connecting them with Jesus. So you come on the arm of a friend, and then along the way, everything we do needs to be oriented towards this process, right? So what do we do to help people? Well, we do things like alpha, don't we? We do things like yoga. We do things like uh, what we're doing now, worship services. We do things like a whole bunch of counseling. Uh, you, you may not know this, but I meet... And Wendy, but it, but a lot. I've, I spend quite a lot of time with just talking with people about the, their journey of life. Often, who aren't part of the church, but are in early stages of recovery, still caught in addictions, marriage breakdowns, all sorts of things. So we, that's what we do. But you are all part of this as well, right? Um, what else do we do? We do small groups. We encourage you in Bible reading prayer, yada, 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 all that stuff. And then God willing, on the other side of this, you and I become a little more like Jesus. <laughs> and then as you and I become a little more like Jesus, we are then equipped to serve others. Now, uh, at one level, the model sort of breaks down because you and I are both the output and the input and the system that produces the transformation, right? So think about it. Uh, you came to Jesus, you're growing, but who does all this serving here? Who are the people who are adding value to the people on their spiritual journey? Who are the staff, the, the human resources who make all this work? Let's pretend that's not a rhetorical question. Us. Us, right? Like, us. That's what the Bible means when it at one level talks about the priesthood of all believers. This is a shared, this is not a, I mean, I can have a very, I can have a role for some people. I can try and architect the structure and cast a vision, and then I have some limited skills, like I can talk quite well. I am a good talker. But my capacity to get alongside and, and help lots of people is severely limited. And it's not meant to be just one person or paid people or special people. It's an us thing. Because God has worked in your life. And then immediately he starts working in your life. He says, hey, grab the hold of the hand of someone else and help them along. It's not rocket science. Now you might go, but hang on, Mark. I'm not a, <laughs> to go to Melinda's point, I'm still a work in progress. I'm not a perfect Christ-like disciple. I don't know the Greek and the Hebrew. I'm not a fully integrated, self-actualized uh, human being yet. Yeah. Yes. But God still is going to use you. And it's an us thing. Now... 
one of the us things that we do is we, uh, as part of this journey, God has designed it that when I learn to be generous and lean into the us-ness, when I see how God is going to use me, that he loves me, he changes me in this process, then he sends me back out into the world to draw more people in. I become this person here, drawing people in. When I discover that, I find more and more and more energy from God. So this is God's plan and God's energy to energize you and me. So he puts all this energy into us, into this system, so that it works. And here's how it works. As well, we, we don't just release our time and our prayers and our attention to other people, but this takes money. Now, here's the brilliant thing. When, and we'll talk about this a whole lot, the best way to learn how to be generous and have the God's a Christ-like attitude to money is to follow Jesus' teaching in giving it away, and in particular, giving it away so that others can come to know God. It's the most significant thing any of us can do with our money, is release it so that others can connect with God and learn to live great lives. And so as I am set, I have a vision of what God is doing in the world, and we'll talk a lot more about that over the next few weeks. And as I, as I get a vision for what God can do here, I release my time and my talents, but also my treasure, my money, into this, because it takes money, right? It's as simple as that. And uh, here's the other thing. Uh, the money is an us thing. It's, um, funnily enough, not a me thing. Um, it's, not a, it's not just a one-person thing, and it's not just two people. It's all of us. Money is simply an expression of our being engaged with God in the mission. And so uh, we're going to talk about that. Now, to help us think just a little bit before we jump into some more Bible stuff, uh, I'm going to ask Pete to come on down. Uh, Pete uh, Nichols is one of our wardens. And um, so Pete's going to chat a bit about the, the practicalities of this and, uh, and some of the implications for church. Um. As Mark said, I'm one of the wardens here, and this isn't just about Mark preaching about money. This is about the parish council talking to you a bit about what that means for our church. And that's what this presentation is about. Um, so apologies in advance for my bad formatting and cobbled together presentation. Um, if you have any questions after this, come and speak to me or to Byron, to Pete Gardner, to Anne, um, members of the parish council. Um, so as Mark said, here we've got a bit of Jerry Maguire here. Show me the money. Um, this is all. This presentation is about giving, and it's important because, as Mark said, we're we're called to do it. So I guess really, why are we why are we asking this for for the point of Darling Street? Um, this is a bit of stark chart. You can see here. Two, three years ago, average tithes, my chart doesn't show it, but that chart on the left should say $30,000 per month. I did a presentation 12 months ago, quite similar to this, and we were about $10,000, and we're still about $10,000. And I guess the thing is, we're trying to really invest in our community. And as Mark says, you know, that costs money. So how are we trying to invest in the community? Well, we're trying to do social work, youth ministry, kids' church, outreach, outreach, community building, 
and you know community buildings in the physical sense, bricks and mortar. Um, you know, as I'm sure you know, we've bought an office, which was a great transaction for us. But again, that costs money, as does this building and the maintenance of this building. Unfortunately, none of that comes for free. So last year, there was a question around, well, the reason we don't have any money is because it's all the diocese's fault. And so I just want to be very clear about this. We need to ask ourselves, do we want people to know about Jesus? And if we do, we need to invest in what the church and the bishop is trying to do and building and investing in churches and across the whole of the community. And again, I think you should speak to Byron about that and some of the, the things what we're doing in Western Sydney, it's very important. And that's really what the levy is trying to do. Um, so what does this all mean? So at the moment, you know, we had budgeted, so uh, I have the, the joy of creating a church budget every year. And when we did this budget in the back end of last year, based on what we were expecting and from you know the people we've hired, we were expecting to make a, a loss for about $30,000, which is fine because we have enough cash in the bank to, uh, to cover that. The challenge is that our income is not what we were expecting to be. And just to be clear, that wasn't an estimation of saying, well, we're going to see a massive hockey stick. Um, in my job, I often see forecast hockey sticks, and this was not a forecast. It was just using run rates. Um, but our giving has actually come down since, you know, on an annualized basis from last year. So if things don't change, you know, the church will lose $100,000 of cash money this year. And, you know, that will put us in quite a lot of financial stress and we won't have a lot of cash left in the bank. Um, so that often is a question, but the church has got loads of money. Well, we don't really. We have a lot of assets, but they're not liquid. Property, you know, advertising signs. Um, we've also invested in the office. Now, the office will pay back money over time because we're not having to spend rent anymore, but we took a mortgage to do that, and so we are carrying debt. Plus, you know, we just need some cash in the bank to be able to pay people's salaries, to fund events. You know, we just need working capital. And so, you know, we really shouldn't think about the church as being very cash rich. It just isn't true. Um, so what are our options? Well, we could sell something. The problem with that is it's, it's not a sustainable model. We just keep on selling stuff and run out of cash. Eventually, we'll, you know, they'll just keep on being presentations like this. Um, we could cut costs further. You know, the challenge with that is that we don't really have enough staff. You know, there's lots of things that we want to do as a community. And, you know, we don't really have the people already to do that now. And so that kind of means that we're really underinvested. So what can we do? We can do this presentation and this series of sermons that Mark's going through. Now, I often get asked the question, how should we make our giving more tax efficient? I come from the UK, as you can probably tell. The UK is great. Your tithes are all tax deductible. It's awesome. You can just <laughs> log it through. It doesn't work like that in Australia, as I'm sure most of you know. However, we are on it, and we are thinking through this. And Byron's done a lot of work with the diocese, with some lawyers, and we're actually setting up a building fund which will allow us to cover a lot of the day-to-day -day expenses of the church. There's also the Riggs Fund, which is for effectively um, gospel teaching in schools, and both of those funds will be tax deductible. The Riggs Fund is already established, and the building fund, subject to final approvals, should hopefully be done by the end of year, by the end of financial year, so in the next sort of few weeks. Um, and again, if you want to give into that, please talk to probably Pete Gardner or Byron in terms of how that's setting that up. So what can you do? We can obviously pray more. We can serve more. To Mark's point, volunteering really does help. 
I think the final thing is giving more. And practically, how do you do that giving? You can use the square at the back of the terminal, which Anne, you know, Anne's got there, and you know, we pass that around. But probably the thing that I do, because I forget stuff all the time, is through the direct debit, through a standing order, through your bank account. It just means that you've known you've taken care of it. You know you've given what you need to give to, to God. And you know, I strongly encourage you to think about that because it is a way that it sort of, you know, it helps you kind of do that giving and prioritize that giving, which is important. And remember, it's not ours. We're just looking after it whilst God's given it to us. You can't take it with you. And finally, we're going to do something that's tax deductible, which is always a good outcome. Brilliant. Thanks, Pete. Um, uh, I just think God has organized the world in a rather wonderful way that when we obey him and... Uh, and live the way he wants us to, everything works, right? So we release the amount of money into the system that God, that we need to do the work God wants us to do here. That's good for the community, and it's good for us and our souls. Um, and again, let me say this. Uh, maybe I'm... I find, it, I, I find it not hard. I don't want you to hear all of this as a as a fundraising pitch to fund the workings of the church. There's a bit of that, um, but it's, it's a, the goal of what we're doing is an appeal to say funding this church is a means that God has given us to become increasingly Christ-like in our use of money and in our generosity. Like, that's really what interests me most. Uh, what, what God will hold us accountable to, or what God will hold me accountable to, say, as the pastor of this church, is not whether we made budget at the end of the year. Like, God could do that, just like that. Let me tell you, there's... Uh, just like that. What God will hold me accountable to is, have, Mark, have you, have you helped build a community where people are Christ-like in their generosity? Now, that may or may not mean you hit the budget in any given year. I don't think God is that interested in our budget outcomes. But I think he's massively interested in my heart and in your heart. And so I'm trusting that if our hearts are moved in the way of Christ-likeness and we grow spiritually, then we'll have all the money we need to do the work that God wants us to do. And if the money isn't there we don't do work and if the money is there we do it and it's really as simple as that so that's where we're heading um, the the school building fund tax deductibility is very significant so if you have in mind as you go through this uh, you think to yourself gee I this I need to change my giving I need to engage more God is really speaking to me and you go okay I'd love to lean in a bit uh, and you want to do something by the 30th of June, and you want to make a tax deductible, hold off until we've got that in place. Um, I would say that. We've got enough cash. We're not going to go bankrupt. We're not going to run out of cash before the 30th of June. So hold it off and chat to Pete or Byron or myself ab about that so we can try and make the maximum use of that tax deductibility, uh, if that makes sense. I'm sure... I'm sure it makes sense to you all. This is, it will be of great benefit to us. So um, in the remaining little while, we're just going to finish off with nine principles. 
<laughs> I jest. We're not going to do that now. This gives you a heads up of where we're going over the next couple of weeks. And, uh, and we're just going to unpack this and think about this. And, and this, we're not going to talk specifically about the church budget after this, but we're going to just keep talking about what God is doing in our hearts and in our lives. And today we're going to start, just want to finish off with this principle, the first pr and most important principle of becoming a generous human being is to give your heart to Jesus first, not to your money. Another way of putting this is love Jesus more than you love your money. Another way of putting this, and this is why you love money. Okay, can I tell you why you love money? Because when you love money, what are you actually loving? Okay, well, let me, let me rephrase the question. Whose money do you love? Can I make a confession? to help you understand this point. I don't love your money. Do you know whose money I love? My money. I love my money. Why do I love my money? Because my money gets me what I need. Security, significance, status. My money buys me and the, the sense that I'm in charge of the world and I'm doing a pretty darn good job. So I love money because I love me. And Jesus says, don't love yourself. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But it has to start with the love of God. Jesus said this, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. Oh, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. How many of you were heavily invested in Luma, the cryptocurrency that went from, like, you know? Again, doing research for this. The stories, I watched this online video of a guy who went on holidays for two weeks. When he left, he had $2 million dollars in Luma cryptocurrency, when he came back, he had, you know, $1,000. Just like that, it went, poof. And you go, that could never happen to me. Oh, yes, it could. Oh, yes, it could. I, my family have lost all their money twice as a result of uh, pogroms and persecution and the Holocaust. Just like that, you go, we're successful, we have it all. My grandfather is a very successful doctor in Frankfurt from a line of Jewish doctors, well-established in practice with a Gentile. This will never happen to us. And then, bang, just like that, it's gone. Age 50, uh, age 39 has to start all over again with nothing can happen. Don't, don't store up for yourself treasures. Don't think that your life will come from what this world has. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You will follow what you love. If you love God, if you love God, then your heart, and in the Bible, the, the word heart, you could think of it as the, the CEO of your life or the decision-making center of your being. 
you will always decide to follow what you love is what that's saying. So if you love God, you'll always choose things that take you closer to God. If you love yourself and you love money, you will always choose things that take you closer to those things. So it's a matter of your heart. It's a matter of my heart. I have no idea what's going on in your heart. You may not have much of an idea of what's going on in your heart. But a really great diagnostic tool for what's going on in your heart is what's going on with your asset allocation. It's a diagnostic tool. Now, if you want me to help you di use that tool to diagnose what's going on in your heart, I'm open for a cup of coffee where you can bring your bank statements and your superannuation and your credit card and your family budget. And I'm happy to go through that with you if, with the lens of Jesus on and say, what does this say about the state of your heart? I'm expecting I'll have a lot of free time when that offer is not taken up. Pretty confronting, isn't it? Like, whoa. And by the way, I have to confess, I have the capacity to be enormously generous with other people's money. <laughs> and I'm in the, I'm in the like, I, that's a diagnostic tool where your treasure is. What you love, you will decide to go after. Um, Matthew 6, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And remember, money is, is, is really, that's really saying you can't serve God and yourself. You've got to choose. I have to choose. Now, here's why it's so hard. Like, this, this pushes me to confront the fact, do I really believe there is a God? Do I really believe there's a God? This, by the way, is why Jordan Peterson won't claim to believe there's a God. You may, you may not be a Jordan Peterson fan, um, but, and you may not even know who he is. But if you do, he's been pushed a lot. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? He says, no, I won't say I believe in God. I try to live as though there is a God, but I won't claim to believe in God because I know that in my life I do not live consistently with that belief. And it is enormous arrogance to claim that you believe in God. He says people who claim that, to, that, that like how can you actually believe in, claim to believe in God? And I thought when I hear Peterson say that, I say that is exactly right. Like, the, to, to live as though there is a God. Like, actually, actually, do you believe it, that God will look after you and care for you? Oh. Let me see your bank account, and I'll tell you, you probably don't believe there's a God. You probably, you probably think mostly you hope there's a God. You're pretty sure there's a God. You come to church in the hope that you know, you're buying a little bit of afterlife insurance. But really? And I don't say that, I don't say that with any judgment because that's me. That's a daily struggle to live as though there's a God who will care for me and provide for me. Even when I'm generous, because here's the problem. When I give my money away, I become poorer financially. There is no guarantee that if you're generous, you will get rich in this world. In fact, the opposite is true. When you give your money away, if you, if you follow Jesus, 
you will chances are die substantially poorer economically than if you hadn't. But that's the call. You can't serve both God and money. And then there's a whole bunch of Bible verses, and there's a lot more to think about, and I'm very excited about this journey for all of us, aren't you? And here come our kids. And by the way, there is nothing, there are a few spiritual lessons more important for our children to learn than this one of generosity and being free from the love of money. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you love us and you are the generous God who gives to us without withholding. Thank you that, uh, I guess, well, really what I want to do is I want to pray the prayer of the, of, uh, I want to pray the prayer of the New Testament that says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And the, in the area of my money and my generosity and our money and our generosity, Lord, I want to say to you, we believe, help our unbelief. We want to serve you and not money. We want to serve you and not ourselves. So help us, Lord. Help us to be honest and courageous and to lean into you uh, in this area of our lives and to live as though you actually exist. Amen. We're going to...